Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are hitting book 13 of Homer's Iliad. Shiloh's going to do a brief summary and Jeff is going to ask us an opening question. Over to you, Shiloh. Yes, thank you. So 13, very complex book of the Iliad. It's long. It's twice as long as 14. It's, I, I found it very difficult to follow, so I'm, I'm eager to talk to you guys about it. So the book features Poseidon, and I take it that in the literature it's got this fancy Poseidon name. I don't know what that is, but like the, you know, how they have the Diomedia or whatever. It's got a, it's got a neat Poseidon yeah. name. So um, it fe- <laughs> Jeff probably knows it, but uh, it features Poseidon, and Poseidon is sad to see the Achaeans losing. And so he visits the Ajaxes. There are two Ajaxes as Calchas, and he rallies the Achaeans. So there's this great rallying moment where Poseidon is raising the morale, encouraging to attack, and lo and behold, they drive Hector back. If you recall last time, the Trojans were advancing on the Achaean ships with alarming speed. And so Hector is driven back. There's a number of things that go on, a number of smaller battles between heroes. Most notably, Poseidon enhances the fighting capacity of this fighter, Idomeneus. And this person then with uh, these uh, Poseidon superpowers, Idomeneus leads a renewed assault against the Trojans. And uh, he wants in particular to kill a certain person. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. uh, Diophobus, something of that nature. And so he's searching him out. And this, you know, is a considerable part of the book. Uh, A number of people get in on the action. Menelaus gets in on the action for a while. But what essentially happens is that the Trojan heroes begin to beat back or sorry, the Achaean heroes, heroes begin to beat back the Trojans, and Trojan morale really does begin to wane. And toward the end of the book, you get an interesting exchange with Paris and Hector. They have a little spat about how things are going. It seems like uh, stress is high uh, at this point. And then at the very sort of conclusion of the book, there's a favorable omen. Ajax, I believe, sees an eagle, and uh, the Achaeans now are at least partially recharged. Um, There's still some work to do in recharging their batteries fully, but uh, they're getting there with the help of Poseidon. Yeah, thanks for that summary, Shiloh. I I too find this a hard book to understand. I think there's a, a certain perspective from which we could say nothing happens in this book. Right. It starts with the Trojans around the ships, the Greek ships threatening to burn them. It ends with the Trojans around the Greek ships threatening to burn them. And it is dominated by Poseidon's activity in disguise which activity is possible because Zeus's attention is elsewhere for the, the course of this book. His, his mind has wandered. He was watching the, the fighting and now he's not paying close attention, which gives Poseidon this opportunity. So, you know, I was wondering, well, if I were one of these Greeks listening, you know, and I presumably wouldn't listen to a, somebody recite the whole of the Iliad on any given occasion, maybe I'd request a book, maybe I'd use one of those fancy names that Shiloh was talking about to talk about a series of episodes. I'd say, oh yeah, give me the Diomedes part, or oh yeah, give me the Poseidon part. Why would I ask to hear this part, right? Do I just want to hear the list of second string Greek and Trojan heroes who get to, you know, attack and wound one another? It seems like there's a lot of that. But what's what's really happening in this in this part of the story? So I have a I, I have a guess at that. And I want to ask a question about it. Um, so the first place I wanted to look is at around line one oh seven, just to point out that something Poseidon does while he's going around encouraging the Greeks. He's in the form of Calchas at this point, who is one of the Greeks who is a, a kind of seer, 
And this is what he says, uh, starting at around, I guess, 105. So the Trojans in the past, at least, were not minded to stand and face the might and the hands of the Achaeans, not even a little. But now, far from the city, they are fighting at the hollow ships because of the baseness of our leader and the slackness of the people, who from their quarrel with him are not minded to defend the swift-faring ships, but are being slain among them. But if the warrior son of Atreus, wide-ruling Agamemnon, is really the cause of all, because he dishonored the swift-footed son of Peleus, yet we must at least in no way prove slack in war. So it looks to me like what Poseidon is saying in the, in the person of Calchas is the reason that the Achaeans, the Greeks, are so bad at defending, they who should be really doing much better against the Trojans than they are, is because they are all quarreling with Agamemnon. They're all quarreling with him because they've adopted Achilles' quarrel with him, right? And you will remember from the very beginning of the book, the quarrel of Achilles is he deserves more honor because he's the best fighter that the Greeks have. And behind that is the thought that as the best fighter, he also has a right to claim to be a leader of the Greeks. I haven't hit my question yet. I know I'm talking a lot, but this is just by way of giving a background to try and think about what's going on in this book. I wonder if this thought isn't spreading, hasn't spread, I guess, you know, in the past through the Greek ranks. So it now looks like everybody's a little disgruntled with Agamemnon. And so let me jump ahead then to another passage, and then I'll ask my question, I promise. This is from the Trojan side. Polydamus... Uh, one of the Trojans, I think maybe uh, he might also be a seer, but he comes up to Hector, who is the head of the Trojans and who is really responsible for the Trojans doing as well as they are doing. And he says around 725, Hector, you are a hard man to convince with words of persuasion. Because a god has given you deeds of war as to no other, for that reason, in counsel too, you are minded to have wisdom beyond all but there is no way you will be able by yourself to compass all things. So it looks like Hector might think something like what Achilles thought. I'm really good at war, so I should also be good at leading. And Polydamus is saying, hold on, uh, you, you shouldn't make that inference. That's not obvious that that's the case. He's going to go on and say it's actually not the case. Uh, the same person doesn't get both skills from Zeus. And so here's my question. It looks like this is on the minds maybe of both sides. Is it true that military prowess, military virtue, gives you other virtues, and especially maybe virtues in deliberation? Or do we think it's more the case um, that the two things are separate, that if you have military virtue, you don't necessarily have virtue in deliberation? Um, and if we can take a stab at what we think on this view, we might start to see why it's preoccupying, if it is, both sides of the conflict at this moment. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, it's interesting that, that the Trojans are thinking through the same thing. I mean, they're, they're having a pretty good day here. <laughs> so uh, the fact that they're considering this must be, or might be, the fact they, they have not pushed the Greeks back in, into the ocean, into the water. But it, it seems like they're they're, this is this is a pretty big W for them, you know. They forced the Greeks to build the wall to build the trench. They've then breached that. 
So it, it's a little confusing to me as to why exactly Polydemus is, is having this conversation with Hector. Unless this falls like right on the heels. I'm trying to get the timeline right in my head. Is this right on the heels of when Ajax hit? No, that's in 14, right? When Ajax hits him with the rock. Right, yeah, yeah. He's about to get clocked in 14. And that's, a, that's a very exciting moment. But it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're hooking and jabbing. I guess the Greeks at this point have pushed them back a little bit. Because uh, we get a good chunk of Greeks wounding Trojans. But... You know, they're still in the camp at this point, right? Yeah. In fact, this might be, you could make the argument, this is the peak of the Trojan military achievement is right now. They're never going to be better off. I mean, there's a little bit more they get to do, but they're very close to never being at a higher situation than they are. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, this seems a really bad time to have this talk. Mm -hmm. So it, not Polydemus is right because he should shut up and pick up something sharp or heavy and hit somebody, you know, with... I remember my old platoon commander uh, used to say, you know, if, if you hit somebody in, in the other uniform, the worst you can be is half wrong. You know? <laughs> um, and, and sometimes you just need to pick up something heavy or sharp and hit somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting they're having this conversation and the Greeks are having this conversation. Jeff, when you talk about military virtue... And, uh, and deliberation. Um, do you have in mind an individual's military prowess, or do you have in mind um, so like an Achilles on the battlefield? Does his individual excellence on the battlefield translate to deliberations, uh, wisdom, and deliberations, or do you have in mind someone more who's like a general on the battlefield, whose excellence is a general, not as an individual fighter, but as a general would translate into deliberations? Because I can see these two things being a little different, and I don't, I'm, I have a couple of remarks on the question, but I don't know which way you want to come at it. Yeah, I was thinking of the first, just to follow Polydamus's formulations, and I think the second case that you mentioned uh, starts to blur the two together, right? Because the general who's yeah. excellent at commanding individually excellent soldiers, let's say, or even individually mediocre soldiers, he already seems part of the way down the road to being good at deliberation as well. Okay. But yeah, the way Polydamus puts it, a god has given you deeds of war as to no other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just got to mean that Hector can kill more people, mm -hmm. right? And is it the case that people who think I'm really good at killing other people also think then, therefore, I should lead in war? Maybe that's um, yeah. the, the first step. Yeah, there's a similar dichotomy or a similar problem between, um, ec uh, this is related but not identical, excellence of the body. Does excellence of the body um, betray or reveal moral excellence? You see what I mean? So you, you see mm. beautiful people and you see they're like muscled up. And your first thought is to think, well, that's an excellent person simply. But a lot of the times, the most beautiful bodies contain souls that are, are, are hideous. I mean, just think about, <laughs> go on Instagram <laughs> and you'll see, you'll see this to be true. So this strikes me as something similar, that you have this... Um, a certain sort of excellence which is easily mistaken for another kind but and we we can talk about that but one of the things that just occurs to me and this will be offensive to everyone in the military for which i apologize given the title of the podcast but uh but uh yeah i was talking to someone from the military yesterday about leadership in my leadership program and um one of the things that i noticed is that 
for every, um, we were walking through various uh, scenarios, um, sort of uh, as one would do um, with case studies. And for every crossroads that we would come to in a historical case study, and, and Brian, you'll be familiar with this, and you probably could, could help me with this, the person would have a, a pre-programmed set of steps to walk through to get to the answer to what should be done at this crossroads in our, you know, in this pretend uh, mm -hmm. case study, you know, or this pretend world where we need to make a decision. And so they would, it was like they had a manual and they could be like, go one, two, three, four, five, here's the decision that we should make. And one of the things that I pointed out to this person is that the intellectual agility required for d the deliberations that are as rich, say, as someone like Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, you know, thinking about matters uh, seemingly in a vacuum with just his mind. He doesn't have a handbook. He's not been trained to, to do certain things in a certain order. That, uh, the capacity to develop those kind, that kind of intellectual agility is not fostered by um, military administrative bureaucracy. You see what I mean? Like you, Abraham Lincoln, there is no safety net. There are no, you know, there's no manual. And, the, and so I was really having a hard time communicating with this person because their claim was that because I'm good at battle, because I, you know, have this uh, thing that I've, I've been trained to memorize, to know and to do, therefore I can look at a case study like that of Abraham Lincoln or Ulysses S. Grant or Winston Churchill and walk through uh, my decision tree, apply it to their particular difficulty and arrive at a good answer. And my argument was you cannot do that. These people like Lincoln were calling on a wellspring of wisdom from Shakespeare to the Bible to Euclid. In Churchill's case, you know, the man uh, won the, the Nobel Prize in literature for writing these gigantic histories. What they're calling on is not some manual. You know what I mean? It's not some decision tree that they have in their pocket. And so this occurs to me as a, a real world example of somebody mistaking some form of, of a military excellence for um, a capacity to deliberate in great leadership circumstances. I don't know if that if this applies here, but I suspect this is uh, related insofar as you have the same mistake uh, in mm -hmm. perpetuity. I, <laughs> you know, I, like I, I don't want to presume what branch the person you're talking <laughs> to is. <laughs> uh, I, I would bet you a nickel it wasn't the Marine Corps. Yeah. You know, this is it a was not, thing uh, with, was not with the military, right? <laughs> this was Boyd and the OODA loop. Um, and, and so my, uh, I'm, I'm tipping my hand to some of our listeners about which branch I think uh, Shella was talking to. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, and, and there is this constant kind of um, battle, if you will, between the bureaucrats, the administrators, and, and the warfighters in any military organization, right? And both think that they should have more honor than the other. And in, in the Marine Corps, we, we kind of codify that fairly specifically in that we call infantry is infantry and everyone else is called support. And so there, there is a very specific kind of language um, mm -hmm. and doctrine to back it up. And you know, the other thing that's, that, that is very surprising to people constantly is whenever I say that I, you know, used to be in the military, you know, and they, they, at some point they'll be like, oh, that's man, I wouldn't be able to do that just because everybody was telling me what to do all the time. And I said, I got told what to do about five times in 13 years, you know, like I would get told like, you need to be at this place at this time. But after that, it was just like, no, nah, it's up to you. Like whatever mm -hmm. you think we should do. Mm -hmm. 
And you have, you know, aphorisms and language and doctrine to back that up, mm-hmm. at least in the Marine Corps. You know, it's, it's very much a situation that is designed to support the person closest to the problem. It's not designed to follow you know, a mm-hmm. rigid set of steps. Another another aphorism I like to use is doctrine is there for, for the guidance of the commander, but it doesn't rule what mm-hmm. they decide what to do. So it's, yeah, it, it's very branch specific. <laughs> uh, not not dogging any specific branch, but I think that uh, several of our veteran listeners will, will, who have especially worked joint, will kind of know which branches tend to be more doctrinaire and which tend to be a little bit more loose. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, this, but it, it's fascinating though that it's the same problem I think that the Greeks are running into is the same problem that all modern militaries run into, right? Is are you going to be ruled mm-hmm. by the bean counters or are you going to be ruled by, you know, the, the war fighters? And I think that there's probably a balance that you need to strike there. Mm-hmm. But there's always going to be some tension. One of the things that's really striking to me in this book, which otherwise just looks like a list of this hero hit that hero, right, is we get repeated references to disgruntled fighters who are disgruntled for something like this reason. So line 459 of book 13, we we get told that Aeneas, who is a hero we don't hear a lot about, but he has a whole epic by Virgil about him, is upset because... He thinks that his uh, prowess in war is not adequately acknowledged by Priam, right? So Priam is the leader of the Trojans. Aeneas is a hero, but he doesn't get enough respect from Priam. It comes up at 775 in this book, and now it's Paris who's making this argument. If Hector says unjust things about him or blames him unjustly, he'll leave the war, he says. Well, that's what Achilles did, right? Achilles was treated unjustly by um, Agamemnon, and so he left the war. So this seems everywhere. And, you know, I think in in our modern military, I see the tension between um, having a field of competency where rules vanish at the first encounter with the enemy, right? And having a desire to mass produce leadership in that for competency in that field, right? And so you want to be able to reduce it to principles that can be communicated quickly, so you can get competent officers out in the field as quickly as, as you're able uh, for a very big military in a lot of cases, right? So I, I see the push and pull. But yeah, I just wonder what it is about people who are good at fighting that makes them think that that skill extends beyond the, the limit. I think there might be a good argument for it. You think it does extend? Yeah. It, I mean... Yeah. You get this in, in sports. I put. I, it's like the best player should coach the team. Mm-hmm. Like, why shouldn't Tom Brady be the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? So they're like, hello, or LeBron James should actually be the coach of the team. And when you when I think of it that way, I think, well, yeah, there is a, a pretty good argument because to, to play the game as well as they do, one has to see the game, and they could make an argument that they see the game in a, in a way because precisely because they play it and have shown excellence in it, they see it better than any coach could faster and these sorts of things and you can then take this and apply it to the military i play the game and by playing i can see it more clearly than than you non-players and i'm the best player i don't know if this if if that's what you're thinking jeff with respect to the argument yeah that's a good start well go ahead brian no i think that brings it up but it's all i think that teases out this idea of counsel versus 
war fighting, right? Because counsel to a certain degree is just effective communication, right? And so the coach isn't doing anything mm -hmm. except for communicating, right? Like that's their whole role mm -hmm. is just talking, explaining things. And so you have somebody that might be good, but have a hard time explaining it or might have great ideas that they can execute, but have a hard time explaining it. And then you have people that are just really good at explaining it. And I think that that's kind of what we're talking about. We see this, it doesn't matter. And I, you know, I love that we're kind of back to the universal here because any organization that doesn't have good teamwork is not going to succeed as well as they should. And a lot of good teamwork is, is based on virtue, right? It's, and this is the other thing that people are kind of shocked I spent way, 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 way more time learning about virtue, learning about doing the right thing and talking about doing the right thing than almost anything else, <laughs> you know? And, and people are like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, no. We spent an inordinate amount of time just going like, what's the right thing to do? And especially about disobeying orders. And so this whole mm -hmm. thing about like, oh, I couldn't join the military because people just told me what to do. And it's like, no, we actually get trained very thoroughly, I thought, and very like heavily with here's what to do uh, mm -hmm. if somebody tells you to do something and it's not the right thing. Like I remember, I, I don't know if I told this story on the pod, but I remember my first Marine Corps ball in uh would have been of two, oh, fall of 2000 so newly commissioned still in the basic school and chuck krulak who was the commandant of the marine corps at the time gave the the keynote speech and i still remember this and he talked about this terrible sean connery movie called the wind and the lion mm. <laughs> where where sean connery is playing a, a berber in morocco in like the late 1800s and revolts against the French-backed monarchy and loses, like starts a revolution, starts an insurgency, loses. I think Anthony Quinn was like his XO, and they're looking out at the battlefield, and they see all of the troops, you know, most of his troops have been injured or have fled, mm. and Anthony Quinn says, we lost. And Connery goes, aren't there some things that are worth losing everything for? So that's Krulak. Commandant of the Marine Corps to a bunch of kids, a bunch of 21, 22, 23-year-old kids who just joined the Marine Corps, and he's going, like, do the right thing. Like, and it doesn't matter if you lose. Like, uh, it, it just blew my mind that, like, a, a Marine Corps commandant, we, we fight battles, we win wars, you know, this is our thing, Marine Corps land. And he's like, no, nah, it's okay to lose. Like, it's all right. Just do the right thing. So this, and this comes to your question, Jeff, about the idea of military virtue, mm -hmm. right? Because if, mili if, if what we call military virtue is based on virtue, then I think it is kind of, you know, it applies to other things, right? As opposed to kind of a, well, in this situation I do this, and in this situation I do this. It's the techne versus episteme, which we've talked about on the pod a lot, just because those are yeah. two of the four words in Greek I know. <laughs> you know, you can, you can have a technical knowledge of war, war, but if you don't have the epistemological knowledge, the, the knowledge that stretches beyond that about, you know, human nature and all the other pieces that come into it, then you're doesn't matter if you're good at the techne, like somebody's going to beat you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You guys just, that, uh, we're, but Shallow and I were confused on 13, so we're just, do, we're just doing no, everything no, we can. No, that's not. We're doing everything we can. I'm, I am. I'm doing everything I can to not talk about 13. <laughs> is the implication, no, no, wait, wait, wait. I have a pressing question for Jeff. Is the implication of your, of, of your raising this question because you said a moment ago that you think there's an argument to be made for the individual, the great individual, 
also being a, making a case for being a great deliberator. Mm -hmm. So what does this mean about Achilles? Are mm -hmm. you saying Achilles should be leading that he's just like he's justified in his, you know, that you guys are a bunch of idiots. You should let me lead. I mean, are you trying to is, is Homer making this argument about Achilles uh, should be the deliberator for the, the Achaeans, not Agamemnon? Uh, I, I think so, or at least um, maybe a more circumscribed way to say it would be that there's a widespread sentiment that that's the case among the Greeks, right? And that something like that. And what about Odysseus? What uh, about Odysseus? Yeah. The best deliberator, but not the best warrior. Yeah, no, I think, well, well that's, that might be a perfect segue into 14 because Odysseus comes up as an option and we'll see he's the source of a criticism of Agamemnon but not a source of an alternative to Agamemnon. And so uh, it's for Diomedes to offer that alternative. And he does it by citing precisely this principle that the good fighter is also the good deliberator. Uh, let me just say, point out one more thing, and then, and then maybe we can say goodbye to our listeners and see them in the next episode where we'll pick up the same uh, theme because these two books are, are so closely connected. But I take Polydamus's speech after the part I read to be inadequate to respond to what he says Hector's view is, right? In other words, he says Hector thinks that he's good at deliberation because he's good at war. And then Polydamus says, but that can't be the case because Zeus gives different things to different people, right? In other words, it looks like a, a reference to divine fairness. This is why Polydamus thinks that a good um, fighter and a good deliberator, the one doesn't necessarily mean the other. Because if it did, it would mean that you got two good things, but Zeus gives one good thing to everybody. So it looks to me like it's a kind of a lame response um, that doesn't really get to the, the bottom of the problem, which I think might be why, the, the uh, as far as I can tell, the problem is still discussed in 14. I think that's a good time to end. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh. Thank you, dear listener. Combatantclassics at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us or at the socials uh, at combatantclassics. Hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like. Give us a rating on the uh, on the iTunes. Helps the show a lot. You can also donate if you feel like it. If you want you to, do. we appreciate it. And thank you to our current donors. It's very helpful. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you.